morning, everybody. Ooh, it's an emotional time to be here. It's been a long time. Um, and it's good to be with you again today. Um, it's good to be with you. Um, my family and I have been out of town for a few weeks, so it's good to be with you just like in that sense after a few weeks of time away. And it's good to be able to say good morning to you again, even though that's probably the thing I got made fun of for how I said it for the longest time. Like something about my voice saying good morning has been like a constant source of jokes. So I appreciate it, like a good year of being able to say good evening, which I think I say much cooler. Um, than I say good so, but nonetheless, it's good. Um, today's a good day, right? Today's a good day for us at Revolution. And signals our transition into this, um, into this third phase of our pandemic recovery plan, as we really creatively call it. Um, and this third phase centers on us returning to in-person Sunday morning services, which is, which is where we are. But this is also a pretty complicated day for us, too. Um, and it's complicated, I think, in part because there have been some things that we've learned in the last two and a half years of doing church so differently. And there have been things we've learned as a community of people doing church together, and I don't want to leave those things that we've learned behind. So what are some of those things? What have we learned? Well, during the pandemic, I think, I think we found new peace in some ways, in some more quiet spaces for our weekly services. I think we've been able to build deeper relationships with other churches, like our hosts, where we were at Heritage Baptist and some other church communities as well. We learned, I think, I think the most important thing I learned was that our weekly gatherings can give us this chance to practice believing, to practice believing what we believe. They can allow us these opportunities to participate and to, and to wrestle together with the traditions of our faith. And, and I think Revolution continued a journey that it's been on for more than half of our church's existence at this point, away from seeing these great weekly services as these times when church happens and towards seeing them as these moments when a church gathers. But there's a difference. And I don't want us to go backwards from any of those lessons just because we're back to Sunday mornings. But at the same time, we don't want to forget the things we learned. We also want to be excited. I'm already using my bummer voice, which I apologize for. I can't help it. But, but we want to be excited about a fresh start. There's a real tension in all this. There's a real tension in it. This isn't a return to who and what we were and to where we were in February of 2020. But it's also a change. It's also a change from who and where we were last week. So I think, as I've been trying to think, what we talk, we talk about on a week like this one, how do we honor and celebrate both of those things? How do we start new traditions without abandoning, without abandoning the beauty of the things that have come before, even when that beauty has come through hardship? And one of the things that we've done to answer that question to promote continuity is we've done something that I'm sure any like church management uh, program would have told us was a really bad idea, which is we have moved to a new time, a new place in the middle of the series. So like nine, like you've been missing out, like everybody in here has been missing the last forever, and like you're going to be so confused. And that's cool. I think that's great. 
<laughs> no, we, we moved in the middle of the teaching sort of series. Um, in fact, this is the sixth week in a series that we've been in throughout the summer uh, called The Life of Samuel. But I do think that as foolish maybe as it is to move and to welcome a lot of folks who walk a lot of folks back in a week and we're in the middle of learning stuff, um, is I think that by God's good grace, we've actually arrived at a week in this series that I think actually does speak to some of those same tensions that I was describing. Because it's this week where we're going to see Israel, whose story we've been following, feel both the weight of their story so far, as well as this excitement for the story that God is still writing for them. So, to catch us up, to catch us all up, over the past weeks, what we've been doing is we've looked at this pivotal figure in the Old Testament, in Israel's story, named Samuel. And Samuel, we, as we've discussed here, is the last of these figures known as the judges, who were leaders who led Israel intermittently during the season of time between their exodus from slavery in Egypt and then their establishment as this formal nation in a new home around Jerusalem. And what sets Samuel apart over and over again, uh, as we've learned here, is his commitment to both, his commitment to the act of listening, his commitment to the act of listening both to God and also to people. And his discovery that that commitment to listening ends up being the key to compassion. He learns that God is the first listener. And when we follow him by becoming better listeners ourselves, then this kind of miraculous thing begins to happen to us, and it is that we begin to share his heart. We begin to share his heart. And the trouble in Samuel's story in particular, however, is that what the people Samuel is listening to insist they want, which is they want a regular human king to lead them so that they can look more like the other nations that are around them, and have a more conventional, less strange power structure. As we saw, this request amounts to this rejection of God's kingship over them, as well as this rejection of God's way of leading them through figures like Samuel, which makes this a tough thing to listen to. You're trying to listen to people. What do you do when what the people you're trying to listen to want is something bad for you, bad for them? But God, in his, in his compassion and as part of his plan to ultimately draw these same people willingly to himself, so he wants, he wants them to choose him. He chooses to give them the kind of king that they're asking for, to listen and respond. And the king that he gives them is this man named Saul. Now, while I was out of town these past two weeks, Paul and Dante stepped in to help us understand how and why Saul fails as their king. We saw that Saul, oh man, I'm glad there's a reason that I stepped out of town when I did. It's like Saul, Saul is the empty part. Anyways, we saw Saul, we saw Saul, uh, was a tragic figure. And specifically, we saw that he was defined by his insecurity as he strives to please everybody around him. He's fearful and he repeatedly loses heart and loses his faith in these moments when he needs them most. So when he gets serious, he keeps having these moments of weakness and failure. And in the end, as Dante taught us last week, it's this that costs Saul everything. And I would summarize it maybe like this. Saul is somebody who keeps trying to work faith into his life. 
He's trying to work faith in to his life. He tries to earn God's favor by being the kind of person that he thinks God will love. That's it. That's it. It's important to hear. He tries to earn God's favor by being the kind of person that he thinks God will love. But what he misses is a good work, I mean, good kingship even, is something that's supposed to flow out from our faith, not something that you have to work faith in, but something that's supposed to flow out. And specifically, it's supposed to flow out from these ways that we experience how God is already near to us. Not that we have to court him from impressment, but that he's already near. And so perhaps to kind of spoil our ending for today, I want to call that action, or I want to propose that maybe that action is a kind of listening. Listening to the nearness of the God who's already with you. So, in the Israel story, what happens when Saul fails? Well, as you guys talked about last week, the pivotal moment comes in 1 Samuel chapter 13, after Saul's fears lead him to abandon God's instructions before this major battle, and then right after he does the wrong thing, Samuel shows up, and he says to Saul, what have you done? And then in verses 13 and 14, he says, answering his own question, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the commands the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul is still technically and formally the king of Israel. But what Samuel's saying is that Samuel has followed God's instructions and that has led him to this new person, this young shepherd boy named David. And he has anointed David to be the future leader of Israel after Saul. And then, as we see throughout the Old Testament, it's David who ends up being repeatedly identified in Scripture as this person, as this man after God's own heart. And many years after this moment, we're going to see David actually succeed in establishing Israel as as a nation of prosperity. And he is, it's pretty fair to say actually, Israel's only really good king. He's the one. But if you know David's story, or the Bible story at all, you can also know that David is also this figure of profound failure and tragedy. We, we know from the rest of scripture that David is boastful, that he's a traitor to this nation that he's gonna become king of, that he's an adulterer, he's a rapist. And that he's a murderer. You know that he's a bad father. And although God is going to use David to establish his kingdom, it's also going to be David's actions that make the kingdoms collapse inevitable. He's going to be both their one good king and also the reason that they only get one. So all that means is a lot of ink in the last, damn, I don't know, 3,000 years. It's been spilled to try and resolve this question that you might be thinking about right now, which is how can a man like that, how can a man like David be this character who's a figure, who's a person, a man after God's own heart? What in the world are we supposed to be learning from somebody whose example is so often flawed and failed? And how does any of this story help us, and how does it help us from a week like this one that we're starting something new? Well, for once, you know me all, you'll know how rare this is. I'm not going to belabor a word study. It's like, I thought about it, I thought about spending a thousand words in the scripture talking about Hebrew, but I'm not doing it. I'm just going to cut to the chase. 
the quickest way to answer the question, what does it mean that David is a man after God's own heart is this, is that the translation, of course, is misleading, right? A look at the original Hebrew actually suggests that what the Bible is saying here is that David is God's choice. That he's God's choice. He's a man chosen in accordance with God's own heart. Or God's desires for the people of Israel. So that means that the point to that is that David is different. He's the opposite, in a way, of Saul, right? Who was chosen in accordance with the people's hearts. Saul's the people's king. David is God's king. So it doesn't refer actually to, that, to David's own character. It refers to the person who's picking it. But if you hear me say all that, you're like, waffle, 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 right? Like that's the most wishy-washy answer to the question I've ever heard. You're totally right. It's a total non-answer. It's not helpful. Because that answer leaves us to wonder why God would pick somebody whose moral character doesn't seem any better actually than his predecessors. Is somebody that God has rejected. So we're still stuck with that question. What makes David any different? What makes him any different? There are many stories in 1 Samuel that try to answer that question, but I'm going to center us today on a story from chapter 24. And so in this story, it sets some context. David's on the run. He's on the run from Saul, who's seeking to kill him so that he can remain king. This is like a thread. It repeats over and over. It's not what threats do, whatever. It's something that keeps happening in David's story, and it's been going on for a while. And as it's been happening, as Saul has been chasing David, David, who in another season of our show was like once one of Saul's chief generals, is actually drawn this kind of like loyal band of soldiers to him that are traveling around with him. So Saul's got an army, and David's got this like little core group of like strong guys. They're all on the run together. And then one day, as they're hiding, from Saul's army in the back of this mountain cave. The Bible says that this, this following thing happens. It says that Saul went into that cave to go to sleep. David's men were far back in the cave. And the men said to David, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, but lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, My Lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord, on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. Cut off the corner of the road does not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. For my hand will not touch you. So, in this story, what we see that distinguishes David 
from the Saul that we've been learning about these last few weeks? What might we think God is looking for in him? And maybe even if that's still kind of a cloudy question, we can reframe it and ask, what does God want people to see in David? Which might lead them to do the thing God's trying to get them to do, which is to willingly return to him. I think there are a few things, right? First, I think what we see here is that David is willing to push back against his men. And this is probably the most obvious way in which David differs from Saul, because Saul is constantly being led back and forth by the whims of the of the of other people, the people who are around him. And it says here that instead of being blown back and forth, David, quote, sharply rebuked his men. He didn't allow them to harm Saul, even on David's behalf. Now, some of you are like feeling moderately triggered. I would be too if I was standing out there where you're sitting. Because I've heard a sermon or two use just this story to justify all sorts of aggression and even all sorts of abuse in the name of strong leadership. And I don't think that's what it's for. I heard these sermons where somebody says, See, David knew when to tell people what's what. He knew when to be firm, he knew when to be hard, he knew when not to listen. But for my money, I don't think that's what's actually going on here because. Because I think we need to actually pause and look at what David's men are actually saying to him, right? They're saying, hey, look, we know a couple things that you told us, right? Number one, like, you're the anointed king of Israel. That's who you are. And you have told us, you have told us that God has told you that he is going to deliver your enemies into your hands. So, like, look, look. Saul, who is both of the things, right? He is both your enemy and he's the person that you're going to replace as like miraculously fallen asleep right here in front of you. Like how much clearer can God be about the thing that needs to happen? And I think we should look at this and say like David's friends are not crazy. They don't deserve to be strongly rebuked. They haven't done anything or said anything out of line or weird. It's totally possible they're right. Maybe that was God like laying Saul out on a platter for David. But David ends up being fixated on something different. When he becomes fixated on is not what he, how he would interpret the scenario. What he gets fixated on is what he knows that God has said before. And he puts that over and above the hopes he has about what God might be doing now. And I think that is a big, big deal. What David knows is that nobody is ever supposed to lay a hand on God's anointed king. We're pointing out that's probably a good like, precedent for him to set as somebody who's going to be a king, right? Like, this is not going to be the one who breaks the ice on, like, killing acting kings. So, what he knows is that nobody's supposed to do that. That's not an assumption, that's an instruction. His men, though, what they're asking him to do is to, this thing like is to fill in the blanks, right? To connect dots when it comes to what God is trying to suggest. And it gives us an opportunity for connection ourselves, right? Like, have you been in that situation? Not have you been tempted to murder a sleeping king, but like, have you been in a situation where you have had an opportunity to connect dots for God and then to act on what you want to think God is saying? Because I have a lot, truly. 
And I don't think that strong leadership means yelling at somebody when they're earnestly trying to understand what God is doing. But I do think that the insightful question we can ask here is how does God, how, I'm sorry, how does David know what God has said? How does he know? Because I think that's the question that leads us back to listen. You only know what God has said if you're listening. And more than that, I think that it's a question that implies that David was listening even when listening meant not getting what he wanted. And I think that starts to get us towards a different kind of heart. What kind of heart is underneath that? The willingness to listen, even when you try to get the thing that you want. And the second difference between David and Saul here is that David is willing to trust God's timing. This is something that Dante talked a lot about last week. Saul is not only always somebody who's connecting dots for God, because Saul is always trying to prove that he's a listener. Like that's that outside in thing Saul's doing. Like, you don't even have to finish, right? Like, he's always trying to prove by connecting the dots. And I see a lot of myself in Saul, I think, right? Like, personally, I'm convicted by this. Because I don't come from a family of strong listeners. And I recognize that I say that, that I'm recording this on phone, and it's going to go on the internet, and my mom is going to be one of the only people who listens to it. But, so I have apologies to mom, but the truth is, I don't come from a family of strong listeners. I want but true. I want to be one of them. And sometimes when I'm trying to listen, I get really excited as I'm listening, and I, and I try to step in and like finish the other person's, like, Sandwiches, that's right. <laughs> and like when I do that, I want that to come across as attention. I bet I've done that to half the people in this room. I feel in the end of your sentence. And I think I'm communicating like, see, like I'm listening. But what it actually is doing is I'm coming across as somebody who's interrupting, who's not listening. And I think what's notable here is that David is willing to trust that God is still working things out. He doesn't need to jump in. It just this moment. Just because it seems really obvious. Like your enemy has fallen asleep in the cave. This must be the moment the clocks are ticking. Let's do it. He's willing to say, like, I don't know. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for God to finish his sentence. And why does he believe that? What enables him to believe that God's not making this a limited time opportunity? And it's because at the end of the day, David's somebody who believes that he is who God says that he is. His life reveals this pattern over and over again. David's, we know that he was a good shepherd. But he wasn't a good shepherd because he like, sought out to be a good shepherd. He was a good shepherd because he was just confident in who God said that he was. We saw in another story that David was a good musician. And we know from the Psalms that the thing that makes David a musician is that he keeps feeling like God's putting songs in his heart. He's a good leader because he's a faithful follower. He's merciful, I think, because he's been shown mercy. I think David is somebody who works to keep the role that he is in from getting in the way of his identity. To keep the role he's in from getting in the way of his identity. And that is the thing that cuts me deeply. Because I don't trust God's timing. I don't. And the reason I don't trust God's timing is because I'm afraid that I'm not really who I think I am. 
feel like I need to prove it. And my time frame, I have to prove it. So I work hard, as hard as I can, to try and earn stuff that God's just giving me. So this is the like, what did I learn on summer vacation portion of the summer sermon. Here's what I learned over summer vacation for the last two weeks. I learned that I'm not a pastor. I learned that I'm a person. I learned that my job, that first and foremost, my job isn't to lead this church. That first and foremost, my job is not to lead this church. And that's good news because eventually there's going to come a day where I'm not the person leading this church. Well, my job is this. My job is to be more fully myself. That's my job. To be more fully myself. To hear, to listen, to be who God says that I am. And, you know, speaking of some medications, sometimes that means making the time to sit on a rock and watch the sunrise, right? It means making the time to feel love from and for my wife. It means making the time to be present with my children. It means coming back and making time to be a good friend to you. And then, as I'm settling into being a human, being a person, and then to follow this road God is laying out for us as a church, hopefully made up of people. And in that, to try and better understand who God says I am and how who He's showing me I am can work like this engine underneath the job that I'm supposed to do. What I'm trying to say, maybe I'm not doing a good job of it, is that identity isn't something that's earned. Maybe some of you know that already, but I didn't. It's something that's felt and then lived out. So to connect you to David, David is the king. And because he knows he is the king, he can wait on God to make that official. And God's ready to. The third thing, finally, I think we see that David, unlike Saul, is somebody who's willing to trust God's judgment. An amazing thing happens after David cuts off the corner of Saul's road. It's my favorite thing about the story, which is that like, he spares Saul's life and then he apologizes for like the way that he spared his life. Like, cutting the road ends up being too much for David. He's like, I was kind of, actually, I was like, not being fully trusting in that moment. He says he's sorry. When he confronts Saul, he repents. And he opens himself up in that moment, both to Saul's judgment and to God's judgment. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you've done to me, for my hand won't touch you. Now, for a long, long time, because I like this story, and I, I, I could have sworn I've preached a sermon on it before, but when I went, like, thinking I might take a shortcut here, and I used half a sermon that I'd written before, I couldn't find it, so... I don't know what happened to that. So for a long, long time, I thought that the point of this story, and this is why I'm glad I didn't find the whole sermon, is that the point of the story is to be slow and cautious and slow to act. That's the point. And I saw in David's behavior this example of quietness. He, he has these chances to fill in the blanks, to connect the dots, to act too hastily, but instead what he does is admirable is he just sits on his hands you know, it turns everything over for God to do whatever God's ready to do it. And I took from that that I should always learn how to be somebody who's slow to act and 
who just sticks only to the things that I, that I can know beyond any shadow of a doubt I'm supposed to do. And what I'm learning, though, what I'm learning, though, is that this isn't the whole truth. And the reason that it's not the whole truth is because what I'm describing is still attempting to work from the outside in. It's still this model that's built around doing. But instead of being built around trying to do the right things, it's a model that's built all around just trying to avoid doing the wrong things. I have led our church at times like that, particularly in these last few years. Maybe that wasn't always a mistake. Maybe it wasn't always a mistake. Maybe it wasn't always the best either. David does act here at some point. He's not passive, which is how I used to see him. What he does, though, is he listens. And listening isn't the same thing as being quiet. It's not the same thing as being quiet. David, and in fact part of the story, was responsible for the first tattoo I ever got a long time ago. It's right here on my left arm. It's little and it's upside down, which is not awesome. I was warned by the tattooist that I was going to regret that for the rest of my life. And like, I was like, whatever, and then I do. Um, anyways, it's right there. And it's, uh, <laughs> and it's a fragment from Psalm 46. It's what it is, which is a psalm that they like to wrote. And it reads like this, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. And I got it once upon a time. Because if you know me well, you know that like, being still is something that I'm not good at doing, ever. I take after my father. I'm always up and tinkering or doing something. It's just, I, I'm restless like that. And so I need it, and I still need, I think, this reminder sometimes to be still. I appreciate that. And certainly in the story from 1 Samuel 24, we see a moment when David chooses stillness, too. But that's also not the whole verse, is it? Because even the tattoo's telling me I'm not supposed to be still alone, right? I'm supposed to be still and know. And know. I think stillness is something you might do because it keeps you from mistakes, and that's great. But it's not enough. Because the point of that stillness is to know. And how do we know things? We know things by feeling and by experiencing and by listening. Which is to say that we know things by being in relationship. Be still and listen. Who is God saying you are? God's told David that he's going to be king and David trusts him. Be still and listen. Who is God showing you that he is? God's shown David that he's faithful, right? He's shown David that he won't leave him. Be still and listen. What's God doing? Just to be clear, we have the slides working, but still, you're following along, right? Be still and listen. What's God doing? He's working in the story. He's working in Saul's heart to try and show Saul his mistakes. He's working in David's life to prepare him to be the person that he's chosen him to be. He's at work. Be still and listen. 
What is God equipping and calling you to do? He's in this moment giving David the courage and the humility to repent and to lead his men in repentance and to lead his men by leading them in repentance towards obedience and then victory. And this is the kind of week, I think, where we as a church might feel tempted to be really bold about the stuff that we declare about ourselves, right? Like, this is the week we've got, got people here, we've got new signs out front, all that stuff. This is the time we're supposed to say, we're awesome. We're like the best church in the world. We're going to change Annapolis, right? But what we actually want as a church is to testify, not to declare. To testify, not to declare. This church exists to bear witness to the goodness and the freedom of the way of Jesus. That's our mission. We exist to bear witness to the goodness and the freedom of the way of Jesus. We're not here to revel in power or even to change the city or to change the world. We're not here to try and impress God and to earn his favor. That's what everybody's trying to do. The different way, I think, the, the testimony is slowing down and having the courage that it takes to truly experience and discover God's love first. And then to let that radiate out of us, even when it is costly to do so. God is making a way where there seems to be no way. And we have the opportunity to follow that, not for our own sake, but to, to show others so that others might see that this different way of Jesus is, is good. That there is a way where there seems to be no way. Just to kind of wrap this thing up, what I'm saying is this. What if David is a man after God's own heart, not because he does the right things, or even because, as I thought for a long time, he's slow and patient enough to avoid mistakes, Maybe he's a man after God's own heart because God's heart is what he's chasing after. He's after his heart. He wants to know God. And that's the root that's driving him down in the earth, into the earth, right? That's going to lead eventually to the flourishing of whatever it is that God is inviting him to do. So I think, especially for a church like ours, we have to stop doing we have to stop building our identity around doing. We have to try to seek that same anchor and wholeness. So what does that look like for us? But I think it looks like continuing to do some of the things that we've been doing for the last two and a half years. It means continuing to make space for silence and prayer, even in this new space. It looks like continuing to invest in each other and actually trying to be people who, who not only say we're going to walk alongside each other through life, but like actually in a season where a lot of us have forgotten how to do that, we are intentional about learning how to do it again. It looks like being patient towards God's plan, and in the meantime, as we're waiting on Him to open a way for us, we know that our boldness comes and our willingness to be merciful and generous in the ways that we radiate out the things that we're learning about who God is and who He is and who's making us to be. And we can let everybody, the thing that we can do right out of the gate here is let everybody, and I truly mean everybody in Annapolis know that they are safe here, that they belong here, 
that God wants to know them and for them to know him, that we want to know them and to be known by them. It's to say that we can love our neighbors, we can love each other, we can love ourselves recklessly and shamelessly. We can do that without holding anything back or, or trying to couch it or cage it or, or, or reserve some kind of some kind of space for judgment. And the reason we're free to do that is because we're learning that we're recklessly and shamelessly loved, shamelessly loved by our God. And so we need to have the courage to embrace everybody, no matter what you wish they were or what you wish they thought or how you wish they voted or how you wish they identified or anything. And to love people, and this is why, because people are who God listens to. And God is the first listener. And it's that act of listening that lies behind his compassion. So if you're not willing to wholly listen, you're not going to be wholly compassionate. What does that look like for you personally? I think it looks like me inviting you to, to, to pause from your doing and invest more time in your being. Make time for stillness and to make a rhythm for it. And not to stop there, right? Because the goal isn't only the stillness. In that stillness, we can go. So as you invest in that stillness, who does God say you are? And who is He preparing you for?